Well, hello there. It's time for Peer Pressure, another edition. Excerpt from the Kamikaze Fun Machine here on WFMU. My guest today is Dave Scott of Adrenaline OD, Please Juice, Lucy's Trance, and some other bands. He's going to talk about his musical journey and his life experiences having to do mostly with the New York and New Jersey hardcore scene. He's got some great recollections of shows with the Feeders and Gang Green in Las Vegas and the National Enquirer and a really great playlist, including yours truly and some other fabulous local bands from the time. Thanks to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast. And to Liz Berg for all the other podcast duties that she so magnificently manages. We're WFMU. I'm Diane. Stay tuned. Who do we have on the phone here? Is that Dave? Hello? Is this Murray the K? Oh, yes. yes. Am I on the boob tube? It's, it's the Murray the Kamikaze. How are you, Dave? Doing great, Diane. How's it going? Very well. So, uh, folks, my guest for the peer pressure segment of the program is Dave Scott. And uh, why don't you fill the listeners in on who you actually are? Well, I was a drummer for Adrenaline OD. At one time, I was also the singer for Pleased Youth and Sacred Denial. And I've been in a lot of other bands that nobody's ever heard of or cares about. And uh, Well, you can't be sure that nobody cares about it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> trust me on this. And uh, let's see, I was also uh, a columnist for Maximum Rock and Roll back in the day. Mm. Back in the day. But uh, yeah, that's it, man. That, that, that wraps up everything. It's good talking to you, Diane. <laughs> yeah, right. So don't go anywhere. So, I won't. So, um, I'm, I'm set for this. I've got a, a lot of great songs picked out, and I'm wearing my Cro-Mags underoos right now, and I am ready to mosh. I had no idea that they had Cro-Mags underoos out. Uh, that's one of a kind. You know, it's one, Oh, oh, I see. Oh, it's special. <laughs> um, so um, Adrenaline OD is a Jersey band for anybody out there listening from New Zealand, perhaps who doesn't know the, uh, uh, the history of hardcore in this area. And um, ha- were you uh, born and bred in New Jersey, Dave? I was in uh, Clifton, New Jersey, mm-hmm. in the beautiful white trash suburbs of Clifton. Oh. A very punk rock town with, a, with an interesting punk rock uh, history to it. And uh, can, can you expand a little bit on that history? Well, we had uh, one of the earlier punk bands from New Jersey. It was called The Violators. And um, they were the older kids when I was like, still in junior high. And I, and I remember like, when I was in seventh grade in a homeroom class and i'm looking out the window of school and there's this punk rock band and i think they were probably like the first punk rock band i ever saw and they were taking pictures outside of the place and everybody you know kind of was dressed up in like leather and they kind of looked like generation x so they were you know for the day they were kind of really punk you know mm-hmm. um they all worked in a bagel shop across the street from my apartment and that became like a center point for all the punk rockers in the area. I knew people who worked at that bagel shop. Yeah, yeah, members yeah. of the Pleasure Hounds. Uh-huh, yeah. Violators, yep. Yeah. It, was a, it was a happening place, you know, and you go in there, you know, Sunday, and there will be uh, Cheetah Chrome or Johnny Thunders hanging out. Nice. Very interesting place. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, a lot of, I think, 
you know, because of the close location in New York City, we're, we're only about 14 miles away, we had a pretty vibrant scene and a lot of bands sprung out of there. Mm-hmm. It was a cool place to grow up. Liked it a lot. Nice. Which is why I'm in Florida now. And you are and you are in Florida now. Well, that's why I wasn't I sure if you wanted the the listeners to know. We don't have to get out your address or anything. And no, uh, when when was the uh, move to Florida? Uh, I moved to Florida. Oh man, 1993. That's a long time ago. It's been a long time, and uh, I still don't say y'all, and I still don't have a tan, so I'm doing something right. Mm, okay. Um, it's. Uh, you know, when I first moved here, it was a pretty good music scene, and it reminded me a lot of the early days of, like, you know, New York, where it was everything moved back underground again, and there was a lot of good house parties. And, you know, we got some transplants from other scenes that moved down here, like my friend Chopper Step used to be in um, Negative Element from Chicago. Mm-hmm. And um, I ran into John Watson, the first singer of Gnostic Front, down here at a Gnostic Front show. He had moved down here. Oh, yeah, he's from Florida. Yep. Oh, well, he's in Florida now, yeah. Eventually, you guys will all be down here. (laughs) It's a fun place. I mean, you know, where else can you, like, sit in your living room, look out the window, and see your hillbilly neighbor with his overalls vacuuming his lawn and tree for the 50th time? Vacuuming the the lawn and the tree? I I could, uh, he could be a YouTube sensation if I ever videotaped it. But he's completely anal retentive, and uh, he will spend hours and hours picking up every grain of dirt on his grass. It's, it's amazing to watch. It is really, uh, you really test the human endurance. Hmm. Uh, that's, yeah. that's, uh, I, I've never heard of such an undertaking. Yeah, and, and you know, I don't say hillbilly in the sense that, you know, he's from the Ozarks or something. I say hillbilly in the sense that he looks like the guy that was Ned Beatty's love interest in Deliverance. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm getting the, uh, Get, getting getting the idea there. He's big and he's bald and he's very strange. Dave, <laughs> Dave. So so it's good to know that you are not big, bald, or strange then at this point. Well, I am big, balding, and strange. There's a big difference there. Okay, got it, got it. Very good. Uh, so um, now have you um have you been in bands in Florida? Yes, I have. Um. When I first got down here, uh, I sang for a band called The Explosives, mm-hmm. and uh, we did a couple good shows. We opened for Degeneration and Social Distortion and played some decent shows, and then I was in a band with a, um, a guy named Mick Faz, who was in a band from Miami called Critical Mass, who were one of the first recorded punk bands from Florida. Their record goes for hundreds of dollars on eBay now. Wow. Yeah, and... Uh, you know, he's, uh, he's a very talented guy, and he's got some great songs. I played with him for a while. And then um, I was in a band called The F-Pipes with a bunch of friends that were very uh, kind of meat men, sort of. Hmm. And then after that, I was in a power pop band called The Rondos, which I think has been one of my favorite bands that I've ever played with. Oh, really? Yeah, great, great well, band. And you've played with a lot of bands. I have, but, you know, this is you know right up my school. It's, you know, very 70s. Power pop punk, Dickies, Undertones, uh, Incredible Kid, a band. I mean, some good influences, and the songs were good. We had a good singer. The band was very, very good. Awesome. So there's somewhere I read, uh, I, I read some little comment, or, or I guess it was some historical thing about Adrenaline OD, and they said uh, you guys were somewhere between Minor Threat and Don Rickles. Yeah, I would pretty much agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, and and you've got a little bit of a uh, a career going on with uh, the stand up element. 
Yeah, I, you know, like for me, stand-up comedy is like, you know, eating a Big Mac. You want it, you don't ever want to eat a Big Mac. And then you'll have a Jones to eat a Big Mac once a year, and you'll start eating that Big Mac, and you go, I really hate Big Macs. Why am I eating this? That's the way I am with comedy. I'll, like, do it once a year, and it'll be, like, either a, a terrifying experience or a good experience, but I won't want to do it again for another year. You know? mm-hmm. But uh, I, uh, the first time I ever did it was, oh, my God. You, you want to talk about, uh, uh, about awful ads. I forgot pretty much everything I had practiced got up on stage, and um, I don't know if you remember Ed Puglisi, but he used to be the manager of Adrenaline OD. Uh-huh. He lives down here, and he um, came with me to, to the gig, and I bombed so bad that, I mean, nobody in the audience was laughing. They felt bad for me, but I looked in the back, and there's Ed just dying laughing. It was the funniest thing he ever did <laughs> in his entire life. It was humiliating. But, uh, you know, practice makes perfect, and I think the very last time I did stand-up, uh, it it went over the way I wanted it to, you know. I, I it took a while to get my voice, and uh, you know, I think it worked out pretty good. And you how know, long? How long is your act? Um, you know, fifteen twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been doing open mics, uh, nothing that I'm going to get paid for. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's it's just something I always kind of wanted to do. I mean, you know, being with AOD all those years, you had some kind of experience in, uh, especially with hecklers. I mean, you know, we would decimate hecklers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. know? So I always had that kind of background. And, you know, AOD was always funny on stage. We always had some kind of comedic timing that was different from anybody else. That is true. You really seemed, it seemed like your banter was as rehearsed as your music. Well, and, and that's, that's the funny thing is that it never was. I mean, bands like the Dickies would always have their props and the same jokes. Mm-hmm. We, we just played a show. We never wrote anything down. Whatever happened, happened, you know? I mean, we would play CBGBs and a fight would break out, and we'd start playing, a, you know, a fight song. Just go, fight, 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 right. fight. So everybody laughed and stopped fighting, you right. know? Right. Just because it was so stupid. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you know, you're right. You bring up a good point because I have seen, and I love the Dickies, and they do the same thing. And I've seen you guys, I can't even imagine how many times. Right. And it was never a rehearsed bit. Never. Yeah. Never. Yeah. Totally that, improv. And Which, you know, made, made it more interesting. You got something different every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, for I, sure. I think we were on top of our game probably, you know, at some of our reunion shows uh, when we played CBGB's. Um, the, the last time that we played CBGB's for the benefit, we opened for the Dead Boys and Flipper and Peter and the Test Two Babies were all on the bill. And, uh, that was one of the funniest shows we ever did, I think. We were, we were on the money. Mm-hmm. It was good. I had a good time. It's great to be able to judge a show by your playing ability and your, you know, your stand-up, like the, you know. I, I, I would apt more for the, uh, for the stand-up than the playing ability. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't even looking at that? No, nah, not really. You know, it's like, and it's funny, when we did these reunion shows, we really didn't practice. I mean, you know, AOD was kind of always like riding a really fast bike downhill without brakes, you know. <laughs> you, you know, and you, you always, once you start playing, it just comes to you. I mean, mm-hmm. we played these songs so many times. We were together for 10 years, right. you know. And, um, you know, after that, we would do reunion shows, you know, every five years or so. So, it, But I'll tell you the very last time we played, I think uh, age was catching up to me a little bit. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's it, not as easy to play that fast anymore. Oh, yeah, well, those songs are oh, ridiculously my. breakneck speed. My elbow still hurts. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so um, we have a, uh, a question from a listener who's, who says, um, would you be able to talk about the Rainbow Dance Club above the... Uh, 
the the porno theater in Passaic, New Jersey. Um, yeah, actually, I I remember seeing a few shows there. I think we played there with um, Raw Power, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I don't remember too much about that, but I remember um, for whatever reason Harley was in town for one of those shows. It was the first time I saw Harley in Passaic, New Jersey. That was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. And it's Harley's birthday today, so everybody say happy birthday. Oh wow! There yeah, go. How do you like that? Go after Mr. Flanagan. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mazel tov. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember too much else about that. The Rainbow, I think that was probably like 84 when that was going. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's there's been so many, you know how New Jersey is, it's like, you know, clubs would open, clubs would close, and especially clubs that would book hardcore, that, you know, they'd book it for a week, and then they'd get terrified and yeah. never book it again. Yeah, well, we that's... had the hard, hardest time getting shows when we first started. I mean, we had, you know, the very first show we did was at Clifton High School at a Battle of the Bands. And it ended in a full-scale riot. And I guess we got kind of a bad reputation for it, although we had nothing to do with it. Just, you know, Noise's show had advertised it, and people from all over the state showed up for it and started slam dancing. And then people in the crowd started throwing stuff, and the next thing you know, we're getting a police escort out of the place. Oh. Craziness. You know, it's like slam dancing wasn't really... um, the masses didn't know what to do, and that's what the problem was. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and you know, a lot of people thought it was fights. Yeah, you know, and they, yeah, and for sure. Lewis, uh, I remember the first time we played the Dirt Club. Uh, Johnny Dirt practically lost his mind. He was, you know, he never wanted us to have to have us there again. And I think somebody tore one of his couches that day. <laughs> and he comes up, he's like, "How how would you like it if I broke your drum?" And he picks up my drum and breaks it. And I was like, <gasps> "What did you do?" <laughs> and then he felt bad and ended up buying me a new one. And we ended up playing the Dirt Club. I mean, you know, once he saw it was a viable commodity, you know, in the mid-'80s, he he would book a lot more hardcore. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a really great place for shows in that period of time. My my preference was always the shows we did ourselves, like the Union Rec Center. Mm -hmm. You know, the shows that we did ourselves or or the shows that Paul Deck later did in Rawway, you know, where the punks kind of just put on the shows. Those were always my favorite. Yeah, yeah. You know? The clubs would never pay us anyway, you know. We well, would yeah, play that, that City Gardens true. to a packed house, and, uh, oh. you know, Randy would be like, oh, here's your $20, guys. Right, he'd you chase know. you out of there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Um, so, uh, Dave, you are my guest to be a guest DJ, and I did want to get to our first um, set of music, Excellent. and uh, we'll talk to you in a little bit. Um, would you like to introduce the first song? Or yeah, well, you know, First song I'm playing is The Violators' New York Ripper. I guess they were pretty much one of the bigger influences in my life, and this song is just so darn good. And after that, um, two more major influences, Stimulators and the Bad Brains. I mean, we're getting ready to mosh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Clear up the furniture. Get ready. I did, you know, yeah. somebody did write that. Somebody wrote that on the comments page. I have already cleared out the furniture. I can't figure out how far. It, it's down a few comments, so I can't read it now, but they did write. Like, I I cleared out the furniture, so I'm ready. Excellent. Yeah. And we'll have a drinking game. Anytime you hear the word crucial, mosh, or stigma, <laughs> take a shot. <laughs> it may be early, folks, but it's drinking game time. Exactly. All right, so my guest DJ here on the peer pressure segment is uh, Dave Scott. And we're going to hear some violators next, and we'll be back with Dave shortly. Thanks, Dave. Beautiful. Hang on.
City. And that's uh, quite a, uh, a full set there. Dave, are you there? I am sweaty. Oh, yeah. So you windmilling around the room or something? Yeah, I was doing the creepy crawl. Oh, very good. So very let's talk about... So um, why did you choose what you chose? And we did hear from even worse, heart attack, the undead, bad brain stimulators, and the violators. So um, I'm going to start at the beginning. I mean, really, if you're going to talk about New York hardcore, um, you got to go with the stimulators because the whole scene kind of coalesced, coalesced around that band. Um, at the end of... Uh, the 70s New York City punk scene was really starting to die out, and those people were getting older, and there was a whole new wave of blood, and all these young kids started showing up to Stimulator Show and starting bands around that. You know, Heart Attack came out of there, and um, let's see, Misguided, The Mob. Um, there were so many bands back then that just kind of started from hanging out at Stim shows. And um, those were good times. Those early days at Max's, you mm-hmm. know, before there was a a real cohesive scene. Everybody kind of knew that something was going on. But also New York was very late on the hardcore bandwagon, too. L.A. was already established. And for New York City being a major city, we were kind of late to the game with that. But um, I'm glad I finally got going. The 80s were a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, what do you need to say about the Bad Brains? <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, you know, even to this day, I, you know, I've seen so many bands, The Clash and... Bad Brains were just unbelievable in their day, you know, um, the energy that these guys had, and the fact that they were such better musicians than all of us, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, you know, they came from a jazz background, they knew how to play, and they knew how to orchestrate songs that made you want to punch a hole in a wall, you know. Yeah, yeah they, HR, they schooled everybody in the New York HR in his day, man, unbelievable, hmm. unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, The Undead was after that? Yep, um, Undead were one of the first bands that kind of helped us out and let people know about AOD. Um, Bobby Steele, he gave us shows with his band in Long Island, and uh, he was you know, one of the early people that kind of um, helped us out a lot, you know, uh, along with you know Tim Summers and Jack Rabbit, who the two the greatest guys in the world. I mean, oh, the Noise the Show. Uh, noise the Show was how everybody knew what bands to listen to, what shows were going on. It was um, something that the scene wouldn't have evolved without, I think. You know, it, well, Especially you know, back then. I mean, we live now in an age where, you know, I can get in touch with almost anybody oh, by doing a online, search on you know. my home computer. Sure. Which, you know, sure. You, in you the take a- it for granted, you know. And, uh, you know, without the people that did the radio shows or the fanzines, you know, uh, things would have been a lot different. I mean, that's how we got into new bands. I mean, you you would hear some great interviews on Noise's show, and, you know, those guys were promoting some incredible shows in New York at the time, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, and them just mentioning that your band was going to play really ensured people were going to come to your shows, you know. I, and those guys were the ones that included us on the New York Thrash compilation, which really, you know, started our career. Were, were career they the we ones had. that actually tied you in mm-hmm. to the to the Roar people? Yep, yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. I mean, the, they, Jack Rabbit um, only had a demo from us. It wasn't a pro, the stuff on the New York Thrash compilation, Paul's Not Home, mm-hmm. and New Year's Eve weren't proper studio tracks. We were just recording a rehearsal. That's all we had. It was like a four-track tape or something that Sal Canzaneri from Electric Frankenstein made in the rehearsal studio. Mm-hmm. And the song Paul's Not Home, which became, you know, our 
kind of a, kind of a college radio hit for us. <laughs> that was never really a written song. That, that What you hear on the New York Thrash is basically, I think, the first time we ever played it. We just made it up to make fun of Paul. <laughs> and, and, you know, because every time you call his house, he'd always get his mom and he'd never be home. So we just started making fun of him one day, and that's what happened. And what you hear is completely just made up at the spur of the moment. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of cool. I mean, we were very young at the time. It was like 1981, I think, when that was um, when that track was recorded. And then in 82 is when New York Thrash came out. Mm-hmm. And it sold a lot. You know, I mean, it's good having your first record also, you know, have the Beastie Boys and the Bad Brains on it. That didn't hurt. And right. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, by the time we put out the Let's Barbecue EP, a lot of people already knew who we were, and uh, that sold out really quick because of it. What was the original pressing on that? Uh, on Let's Barbecue, I think we may have done, like, 1,500 of the first one and 1,000 of the second. There weren't very many made, and, you know, it's because we really didn't have money back then. We had to save up for years before we had enough money to go into the studio, and then we only had enough video time to record 15 minutes so we just let it run and what you know what you hear on let's barbecue with the exception of one song that we didn't have time to mix is pretty much how it was i think we had one overdub and that was about it mm-hmm. but it was basically done live and uh we had so many of them in the beginning that you know we were making frisbees out of them we were making ashtrays <laughs> out of them you know, now you look at ebay i want to cry you know? right. and i was like oh my right. god who would have thought that would have been worth money could have been your uh, retirement right there <laughs> exactly uh-huh. now, i'll tell you you know back in the day glenn danzig used to give me and my friend dave you know boxes of misfits 45 to sell in our high school for five dollars a piece wow you know imagine what like a sealed box of like you know three hits from hell or <laughs> the beware ep would have been worth these days oh you know? my goodness yeah I retired what yeah. Do? yeah for sure <laughs> well and five bucks a piece was really expensive back then it probably was you know, you know? I, I think i had to force some people to take it as a matter of fact right. you gotta figure the people that bought it back then Probably had no idea. It probably ended up in the garbage, you know? Right, yeah. They had no clue. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's Who knew any of this was going to be worth anything one day? Right, exactly. Who would, who would think? Yeah. And then the uh, the last song in the set was uh, another New Jersey. Well, it, I know that they rehearsed in Summit, right? Uh, even, even worse. worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack Rabbit was uh, originally in the Summit High School marching band, if I'm not mistaken. Aha, uh-huh. I did not yep. know that. Yep, true story. Um, yeah, Jack was another one. Who, uh, you know, we got on a lot of even worse shows. You know, thanks to Jack, and uh, I think he had a soft spot for us because we were from New Jersey and we were such wise asses. You know, mm-hmm. that uh, he could kind of relate, and uh, he he was immense in helping us out back in the day. He would, you know, a big takeover he used to write about us all the time. So uh, yeah, I owe him a lot of props. Very cool. And, you know, I mean, he obviously is responsible for, for getting the word out about a lot of bands. As you oh, he was a DJ at most of shows back in the day. Yep. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And he's still doing the uh, the big takeover, has has taken over and has gotten, you know, larger and is sort of more major magazine looking now. It looks like a an encyclopedia every time it comes out. Right. Yeah, it's true. Like eight months of bathroom reading right there. Right. Every issue. Right. Exactly. <laughs> hey, so um, when did you start playing drums, Dave? Um, I, well, this is funny. I started playing drums when uh, the East Patterson Boys Choir was still around. And the East Patterson Boys Choir was the band that eventually became AOD. Mm-hmm. Um, this was probably like 79 or 80. And their drummer at the time was not really into punk. He was just a local guy that played drums. 
And when he left, I really wanted to play drums. And uh, it was very hard to teach myself in the beginning. And um, I had absolutely zero rhythm. It was all heart, you know. And uh, <laughs> I ended up becoming the manager of East Patterson Boys Choir when I was like 15 years old, you know. And um, I was booking them into CDs, and I, I got them a show at the Clifton City Picnic, you know. And uh, I... I I always kind of wanted to play drums. I knew, I knew in the back of my mind, I would go to like Willowbrook Mall to like the, the Harmony Hut Music Store and see like a drum set, and you know, be a big sign on there, "Do not touch." And I would just have to go up and touch and get yelled at. You know, mm-hmm. just something about it that was kind of pulling me towards it. You know, like uh, that scene in Close Encounters where uh, Richard Dreyfuss is molding the mashed potatoes into the mountain. He doesn't know why. He just knows it's something that's important. That's the way I was with drums, you know, and it took a long time to actually be able to play. And, um, man, those, those early days, it, you know, trying to play fast was not easy, and it took a lot of, um, a lot of stamina, and it took a lot of, of absorbing junior <laughs> being rubbed on my arms. Oh. You know? and, but eventually, you know, you play that one drum beat, and you get faster and faster and faster, and, you know, by the time we come back from some of these tours, I, I would say I was probably one of the fastest drummers in the world, hands down. We were so loose. We were so fast. Yeah. I mean, we, we would try to race. On some of the faster songs, like World War Four. we would actually, you know, look at each other and try to race each other to the end, you know? <laughs> so it was like almost like a competition sometimes. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, for aspiring drummers, here, here's what I would say to you. Wait until you absolutely have to pee before you go on, and you will play that much faster to get Oh, through. good it's one. Always, it's always up in good strategy, mine. Work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very, very good. And uh, I, do you want to mention a little bit about your first tour, the first AOD tour? First uh, tour we ever did was called the Invite Ourselves Tour, and uh, <laughs> it was in 1984. Before that, we had done a lot of weekend shows. We'd gone to Miami, Detroit, and Massachusetts. But this was a first national tour, and we couldn't afford a van or anything. And we, what we did was we went out in Paul's car, and the only thing we brought with us was guitars, drumsticks, my cymbals, and a snare drum. And we would borrow equipment from the opening bands wherever we played. And, you know, not yeah. for nothing, it worked. Okay. <laughs> it, it really worked. I mean, it was probably one of the, the easiest DIY tours ever. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we didn't have to carry a lot of stuff, and there were times where we would just show up at a show and ask to get on the bill. You know, so like the show, career. the tour wasn't actually booked. It was just it was it was mostly booked, but there were okay. some fill-in shows. And if we found that you know a band was playing someplace that we were going to be in the area of, it's like we would just show up. Mm-hmm. And you know, years later, uh, No Effects would steal that, and they would start showing up at our shows asking oh, to play nice, when nice. they were starting out. So. Well, and that's actually a real, um, that, that's a, a very often used tactic from uh, bands overseas now. You know, yeah. they'll, they'll just come over with uh, with what they can carry and not make a big production of it and, you know, kind of get in under the radar and just do their thing. And Yeah. Yeah, but I always wanted to go to Europe. We came really, really close to it. We had our passports. We were a week away from going, and the tour got canceled. Oh, really? Yeah, it was heartbreaking. Oh. And uh, me and Bruce both have the absolute worst passport photos I think we're ever taken ever in the history of passport photos. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It was, I think we just um, completely brushed our hair upwards <laughs> <laughs> and had them take our pictures. It's very hilarious. Nice. Nice. Very good. <laughs> so, well, that's an accomplishment, the, the absolute worst passport photo in the world. Well, we are also the band that made the worst um, uh, 
and photo in the world too. So, which one would that be? Uh, when when we were doing the Ishtar album and we all had long hair, we decided to just brush the hair into our faces so you couldn't see us, and that was our our band photo. It's absolutely horrendous. But you know, we were we were a band that was well known for just making terrible decisions with stuff. Like, uh, you know, we would go out and on tour with pink T-shirts with flowers on them. Mm-hmm. You know, and you had to be really, really secure to be like a big skinhead dude and buy like the AUD shirt with that's pink with the flowers on them. You know, so, I, I think I think we had a good time, kind of taking some of the macho out of out of the scene. You know, there was a little too much seriousness back in those days. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, you know, we wanted to be the fun band. We were more influenced by the Dickies and the Dictators, you know, and bands like that. You know, that really and the Damned. I mean, they weren't serious. They weren't political. You know, they just mm-hmm. had a good time. That's that's. I think that whole message got lost when, you know, uh, probably around '86 when you know that whole scene around. New York started getting really, really hardcore. Yeah. You know? But uh, we, we, we always like taking the, um, the piss out of the bands around us. You know? Well, and fun, fun ends up prevailing somehow because really when it comes down to it, it's like nobody wants to be serious for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. You know, got to have some fun. So speaking of fun, uh, can you introduce the next uh, bit of songs that you've got on your playlist? I can. Uh, we're starting off with uh, Virus which um, I, I wanted to play Dark Ages, but unfortunately their singer James Contra had a bit of a potty mouth. Oh, yeah. Sorry, James. <laughs> but um, uh, another song I like, Name and Number, is going to be played. And uh, Virus uh, contained Patrick Blank and Nats from the Undead. Mm-hmm. Darn good band. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to be playing some Mob. I'm going to be playing some Antidote. I'm going to be playing some Bourbon Waste, some Kraut, some Ism. And... Uh, this is like uh, an ode to my A7 years, I think. Uh, these are a lot of the bands that, that I would go and, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm watching Urban Waste at A7 Club, you know, and when they're over, the sun's coming out. And right, yeah. Those were fun times. Awesome. And the, the scene was so much smaller then, and everybody kind of knew each other, and th- those were very good times. Very good. So my guest is Dave Scott, a drummer, b- best known as drummer from Adrenaline OD. And uh, he's programming the show today. We're going to listen to a few things now, starting off with the virus, and Dave will talk to you in a little bit.
back dave are you there i am here he is here okay so um let's uh go back and recap that last set uh you want to start from the first from the beginning or from the back uh i can start from the beginning it's always a good place to start okay let's start at the very beginning virus oh well we talked about virus a little right, bit right right and next, uh next in, up was the mob yes common criminal one of my favorite mob songs and uh after that Kraut was sellout. And uh, funny story, um, not too many people know this, but uh, me and some friends that I went to high school with um, actually walked down the street behind The Clash in New York City for about two blocks singing the Kraut song Sellout and heckling The Clash. Really? <laughs> yeah, this was uh, when they, they were doing uh, SNL, and this was after the Rock the Casbah stuff came out. They're all dressed up in their Clash costumes at that time. And let me tell you, The Clash were my favorite band. Forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. Love the Clash. But every record, they kind of drifted a little bit further and further from the way they started. And uh, I think a lot of people that were into punk got turned off to, by the commercial stuff a little mm-hmm. later on, you know, that Shea Stadium era. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so we were bored one night, and uh, me and some friends uh, from the band uh, Teenage Sluts from Hell and New Democracy had gone to New York City. We went to Rockefeller Center where the Clash was playing, and as the the guest that night was uh, Ron Howard, and the mm-hmm. Clash were the musical guest, and we were in the uh, right in the lobby of Rockefeller Center, and as the celebrities would come out, we would uh, really start heckling them, <laughs> just being idiots. You know, we, we were calling uh, Anson Williams Nazi, and uh, oh. the Van Patten kid came out, and we were ripping him so bad that somebody had to hold him back from fighting us. Oh, wow. So we're getting, you know, poor kids. What are you going to do? We were punks. So <laughs> right when we're getting kicked out of the lobby, here comes the Clash in their Clash costumes. <laughs> so we walked down the street behind them, and um, my sister was actually friends with those guys, um, knew them quite well. And I went over to Mick Jones and, 
you know, said, hey, you know, who my sister is. And he kind of ignored me because he was with all these, uh, this entourage. Mm. So, you know, I was like, oh, this is the final straw. So we just started walking down the street behind them, heckling them. And um, we started singing the Clash songs. I mean, the crowd song, Sellout, uh-huh. as loud as we could. And they're trying their best to ignore us and just walk down the street. But, you know, I think a lot of punk rockers back in those days kind of wanted to say that's the Clash, but never had the opportunity. Well, here you go. We actually did heckle Well, much. thank you for doing that. And, yeah, you know, yeah. and it was an interesting period of time because I guess that I sort of felt, you know, you've got the attention of the record companies. You can put out any record you want. Sure. And then that combat rock came out. Yeah, it was so gimmicky. Yeah, you know? and I, so I remember being disappointed. From, I mean, even, even London Calling was genius. I mean, mm-hmm. almost every song on there. And um, I think with the more the Clash went on, the, the lamer their live set got, the energy was starting to dissipate. And I don't think the Clash wanted to be the Clash towards the end. And I think it kind of reflected that, you know. But, uh, yeah, that was a, a, one of those weird stories where, you know, we walked down the streets in New York, <laughs> You know, singing the lyrics to sell out behind the clash. Yeah, yeah. How no. many people say they did that? Right, right. No, not at all. And then uh, you did tell me when we were off mic, we were talking about the uh, the loss of Davy Jones. You told me that AOD had met Davy Jones. Yeah, one of the highlights of my life. Uh, we had gotten back from that tour of '84, and we played the Monkees cassette like nonstop. We knew every single lyric to every song of every Monkees song by the time we got back, and we were going to drop off a press kit to get on the Uncle Floyd show. This is back when he was in Newark. And we walk in, I guess that day is Davy Jones. And we're like, oh, my God, we're just like, you know, little kids, like, you know, staring at Elvis or something, you know. And he was very cool. We gave him a copy of Led's Barbecue, and we told him we were really big Monkees fans, and he really influenced us. And he's like, oh, thanks, guys. I'll give it a listen. You know, and we we knew full well like that that was going to the garbage as soon as he heard it. You know, right, right, right. You know, which was which was kind of funny, but um, yeah, he was a very nice guy. It was it was uh it was interesting to see somebody that um you spent so much time listening to or and watching your whole life, mm-hmm. and actually getting to meet him was was quite cool. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is a really a neat story and and unfortunate with his untimely passing, but uh, but a good story. Thanks. I, I'd like to think that he went home back to England after meeting us and you know slam danced to suburbia. <laughs> In my mind, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's really what happened. Well, you know what? You can you can keep that as your reality. Exactly. There's nothing. No, nobody's going to tell you different. Don't dream it. Be it. Right. <laughs> exactly. So after Kraut on the playlist, you heard from Antidote? Antidote, one of the heaviest bands out of New York scene. Mm-hmm. I, I used to love those guys. Uh, their singer, Louie. He, that is one of the most angry vocals right there on that EP. And I, I had uh, a theory of how he was able to sing so angry. Louie always had these great brand new white sneakers every time you saw him. And I guarantee the guitar player, Nunzio, walked over to him when they were recording stepped on those sneakers and said, roll tape. That's how you got that anger. That's how you got that anger. Nice. Nice. Well, that, <laughs> I guess anything is possible, and why not? If you cherish something that much, that would be the perfect time to uh, to do that, to kind of just needle somebody. <laughs> it, that's one of those, um, those really perfect um, records where it just, the sound on it is amazing, the, the takes on it are amazing, guitar players Star playing's great on it. Love that record. Mm. And then after that, we heard Urban Waste with Wasted Life. 
Yes. And uh, another one of my favorite bands back in the day. Those guys, you know, at an A7 show or CBGB's could tear it up. A lot of fun. And then heard Ism after that with I Think I Love You. And uh, another uh, great 45 with probably one of the better covers. Uh, yes. Sleeve cover. <laughs> yeah. And uh, after that, Ed Gein's car with Brain Dead Baby, which is, in my opinion, a New York classic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, 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 you know, I've been really waxing nostalgic about, you know, my early days in the New York scene. You know, uh, there was nothing like it. There'll probably never be anything like it. And, um, you know, I, I was kind of lucky to, to be so close to it. You know, when I was in high school, I, by the time I was 17, I moved to Cliffside Park. I was right across the river from Manhattan, and I was at CB's, you know, every matinee show I could unless we were on the road. So I got to see some great stuff and a lot of classic shows and great bands in their heyday. And, um, yeah, that was a, that was a really great time for music. And uh, you said you've been waxing nostalgic. I know that you're very active on some of the uh, the groups on Facebook, mm-hmm. the uh, the old school hardcore. Yeah, um, I was influenced by that. I started one from New Jersey, um, you know, from the old school days of New Jersey hardcore from 80 to 86. And it, it's been very interesting because uh, you never know what's going to get posted to these sites. I'm seeing um flyers from shows I, I completely forgot how oh yeah there's great flyers posted uh somebody posted a picture to uh the new york um the old school hardcore kids site and um it's a picture of minor threat at irving plaza from the stage and right behind ian and brian baker is me and paul from aod standing on the stage and it's like look at us <laughs> really <laughs> like right on stage at a minor threat show i'm probably like all 16 at the time oh that's hilarious you know, and i never saw the picture before i forgot we were even like standing on stage for that right yeah well, you, you mean in like sort of like the pylon days no no we were we were just watching the show from the, literally the side of the stage oh got it okay i don't know i don't even remember how we got up there <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah there we were who would have known yeah, there and there are some some pretty cool groups on uh, Facebook, and um, and yeah. So it's the old school hardcore kids, and then there's the New Jersey. Is that did you start the New Jersey hardcore one? Yes, I did. Yeah, nineteen eighty to nineteen eighty. Right, right. That was me, and uh, I I did that because I had so much um, so many flyers and pictures that nobody's ever seen except me. They've been sitting in closets all these years, so I figured you know here's an outlet. Let me just get everything out there and. That spawned other people to do the same, and it's been very interesting. There's been some great stories and a lot of people meeting up that haven't heard from each other in decades and decades. So it's been very cool. And uh, so um, I guess you had told me about a project that you were going to be working on. Did you want to discuss that? Yeah, sure. Um, This goes back about, I don't know, six or seven years ago. I had come up for um, a visit in the New York, New Jersey area, and... I had met with uh, Brian Swirsky in New York City at uh, Jesse's Club Niagara, mm-hmm. and I was interviewed for a book he was writing on the early New York hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sat with him maybe two, three hours and did tons of interviews. And years and years later, you know, life goes on. And I, I had gone to see that show I was talking about with Agnostic Front, where I ran into John Watson, and I thought to myself, whatever happened to that book? So I got in touch with Brian, and I was like, hey, you know, whatever happened with that? You know, you had some great interviews, and he did. He had interviews with a lot of the people that started that scene, you know, a lot of people from the earliest days of uh, 
New York hardcore from like 1980. Mm -hmm. And the book was a great idea. And I was like, what happened? Well, what happened was life happened. Brian got married. He had a kid. And, you know, he just didn't have the time. And all these interviews sat in boxes, you know, on these cassettes. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be drumming, you know, maybe anymore. I'm not going to say I'm never going to drum again, but I need to do something to keep myself busy. I would really like to pick up where you left off and get this book out. Wow. And, uh, and, that, and that's what I did. I, I said to him, you know, let me help you, man. I'll make sure it gets done. And um, that's what I did about, you know, five or six months ago. We, we picked up this book again, and uh, we intend to finish it up. Uh, it's going to cover the birth of the New York hardcore scene from, like, 1980, probably to about 1986. And um, it's going to, you know, have a lot to do with, like, that whole scene around the stimulators and noises show, and it was going to talk about the bands. But we also want it to be laid out where, you know, it, it'll be something that everybody that lived through it will be very proud of. A lot of pictures, a lot of graphics, a lot of interviews with the actual people that were there, both in bands and fanzines and, and the fans. And uh, I think it's going to be a really, really, uh, not only a fun project, but it, it's, you know, it'll really tell the story of what happened, and uh, hopefully there's not too much schism involved, you know what I'm saying? And uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, it's going to be a really, really interesting book. There's a lot of great stories, and, you know, just looking over those um, those Facebook groups. Well, that's you know, it. I mean, they're really rich. They're just full of flyers. There's, You know, you can go on there, and there's flyers that, you, that you've that you never seen. I'm like, yeah. oh, my God. And some of them are flyers for shows that I had been to, but, you know, whatever. You knew about this show and maybe completely forgot about the flyer, but I'm not sure. Sure. You know. And, and, you know, New York, New York was different from every place because, I mean, we really were not just – it was not just a melting pot for the city. It was a melting pot for music. I mean, yeah. people came – you know, from New Jersey, from Philly, from Connecticut, from all over New York. I mean, a lot of those New York kids were from, like, Astoria, you know. And, you know, every weekend we would show up at these shows, you know, and, and get to know each other. And, you know, some of it was kind of clicky back in the day. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was lucky, I think, being in a band that everybody kind of knew I didn't really get involved in it and kind of got along with everybody, you know. Right. So which makes, you know, me helping Brian out with this book that much easier, you know. And it's not going to be any one person talking about any one thing. It's going to be a lot of stories. And, you know, I mean, New York was the only place that you could have, like, you know, kids that were from the suburbs going to shows with kids that were actual street kids, you know? Yep. I mean, and you talk to, you know, all you have to do is, like, you know, read the John Joseph book to, to realize that, you know, there were some people that lived pretty hardcore lives back then. But we all got along, and um, there's some really interesting stories, and there's so many sub-stories that not a lot of people really know about that will just make for a fascinating book. Very cool. Well, that's yeah. great because, you know, there's there's a couple books out on the scene, and it's funny when, you know, when the American Hardcore book came out, mm-hmm. um, I was uh, I was doing a lot of engineering for Pat Duncan, so every time there was a band in, especially from out of town, you know, we would all go into like, well, what do you like about this book, blah, blah, and I think it was just too, it was spread too thin. It was like, you right. know, there was a paragraph about every scene, and Every time I heard, you know met somebody from a different scene, they told me the errors in the paragraph. Oh, I think that there's an AOD picture in that book that's mislabeled. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. We, we got like a paragraph or something too. Yeah, and it's and it's a picture of 
you know, you, or it's labeled Paul, or it's a picture of Paul, and it's labeled you, or something like that. I just, I, I can't remember exactly, but it just comes to mind. But it's funny. The only member of the band that was interviewed for the book was Jim Foster. From oh, AOD. How he long was did he in last? the band for yeah. two years or something? You yeah. Know? Yeah. So. Well, and, you know, and it and it and it took. I think that that the uh, and the book itself reports on on a scene that existed and and was vital. Um, but I think it took on much too large a scope and it, was, it did, did. didn't seem to be effective for any territory, really. Right. It lacked the thoroughness that no. the book should have had. Yeah, and, and, and it's you know, I can understand yeah. that, but yeah. what's going to be different about the book that we're doing is it's going to be more like the book Please Kill Me, where it's interviews with all these people that will be strung together to form a cohesive story of the whole history. Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, me or Brian, you know, giving our opinion, right. it's going to be hours of interviews with all the people that were there. And that, you know, combined with some really nice graphics and pictures, I think it's going to be a terrific book. Good. Well, I'm very excited to hear about that. And, me too. Uh, we will We will definitely have uh, you and Brian back on when that becomes a, a full... Uh, Printed reality thing, and good luck with that. So, well, would you, you would you like to introduce the uh, the next set that we have coming up? Sure, I'm going to start with some of my uh, favorite bands from uh, the New Jersey and Connecticut area. I'm going to start off with um, CIA, one of the best bands ever to come out of the, the American hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. They're uh, from Connecticut. Connecticut, right? And they later on morphed into 76% uncertain. Mm-hmm. What song I'm going to play is "Commie Control" off their "God Guts and Guns" EP. And then uh, I've got some Fatal Rage, one of the earliest bands on the New Jersey scene, um, some Bedlam. The Bedlam song that I'm going to be playing is actually uh, written by me. Me and Tommy wrote this one. Oh, really? So, uh, yeah. And uh, then uh, a band called Suburbicide, which another very early New Jersey band that had, um, the singer was, uh, I don't know if you remember Stinky Steve Casmano or Stinkerbell or Tinkerbell or Raven X. He had a million names, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, he also played in Sacred Denial. He, he was the bass player for TDV out of New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. He'd have been around for a long time, but uh-huh. um, they had made the uh, compilation, the Meat House. Yeah, the cassette compilation. Right, yeah. right. So that's mm-hmm. where this song came from. And the, the song I'm playing, Fugitive, is from that uh, compilation. It features Steve Zing from Morning Noise and Danzig and Sam Hain on drums. And then I'm going to play Teenage Sludge from Hell, which is uh, my buddies who came with me to heckle the Clash. And then uh, one of my favorite uh, New Jersey bands, Cyanamid. Yeah. Just, uh, I would say, New Jersey's answer to Flipper by far. Right. Yeah, they, they really, uh, as we say, push the envelope, I guess you'd say. And we're, we're welcome in the hardcore scene. Just, Absolutely. Uh, and thanks so much for putting that on your list. We can talk about that later, too. But just I was listening to, you know, to Dave's playlist in preparation for the show. And, and you know, I have the 7-inch, and I haven't listened to it in a really long time. And... I just love the lyrics to that <laughs> song. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, very, very funny. So, all right. So, uh, my guest is Dave Scott, who is uh, best known for being the drummer of Adrenaline OD and uh, will be co authoring a book on uh, the hardcore scene from here. Do you have a, do you have a working title for it? Or a title? Um, tentatively, we're hoping to go with Loud Fast Rules. Oh, cool. Which would make so much sense because uh, the whole front of the book is going to be an homage to the stimulators. But. Uh, we have to approach um, Diane Mercedes and, and get the godmother's permission first. Mm-hmm. I don't want to just go and do it. Uh, I really think that she's going to be an important part of this, so I'd really like her permission. Right. 
So, but, you know, we'll, we'll tackle that when it comes to it. Very good. So he is my, uh, Dave is the guest DJ for today. We're going to start off with some CIA, and we'll be, at, be back with Dave in a few minutes. Beautiful. Hang on.
All righty, and we are back. I've got Dave Scott on the phone. I am here. He is here. So thank you for playing that cyanamid track. Ah, Anne has such a voice. What a bellow. I know, I know. And and there's so little inflection until he gets nuts. Ah! You know, it's like it's like he's like a giant that all of a sudden finally got his foot stepped on or something. He could uh, strip paint with that voice, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, uh, yeah, so um, let's just uh, talk about what you just played. Okay. We started with uh, CIA. Those are my buddies from Connecticut with mm-hmm. Commie Control mm-hmm. from their God, Guts, and Guns EP. We heard Fatal Rage with Jump and Die, one of my favorite early uh, New Jersey bands off Mother Records. And... Uh, Mother was um, the other New Jersey independent label. Oh, we had yes. Byer Records in uh, you know northern New Jersey, and Mother was down at the shore. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, was kind of the state was. I mean, New Jersey has always been a very split up scene. There, you know, we had the northern part, the central part, and the southern part, and everybody had a different scene going on. Well, and people, you know, I mean, from larger states, just assume that New Jersey is small enough to really just have its own scene, but it's not, you know, to us it's not that small, and I'm not driving three hours, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, just driving to Trenton back in those days as a haul. Yeah. You know? And let's see, then we heard Bedlam with Mongoofy, which yeah. is the song I wrote with Tommy Kaprowski. Mm-hmm. Uh, we heard Suburbicide off the Meat House compilation with Fugitive. Yeah, that's a great compilation, too. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very good compilation. I, I love those early comps because, it, you know, the, the scene hadn't gotten generic yet. Right. Everybody was just kind of figuring out how to do things on their own, and everybody kind of had their own sound, you know? I mean, you know, you listen to some of these early bands like De Kreutzen, and they don't sound anything like, uh, you know, the Cro-Mags, for instance, you know? There's just so many different things that were going on back in those days, and I think, you know, I really liked the bands, like, uh, like which is why I played Virus. Virus were very unique for their day. Yeah, they you know, certainly they were. They were kind of like um, New York answer, like Saccharin Trust or Really Red, who, you know, really um, made moody music, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we heard uh, Teenage Sluts from Hell from Clifton, New Jersey, with Without a Trace. Good guys. I love that band. And then we finished up with Cyanamid with Support Your Scene. And uh, that wrapped up that set. Indeed. So, uh, um, so AOD had a a, a long, a long career. Oh, you know what? I wanted to ask you in terms of like the discography that you guys had. I mean, could you? And I don't know if it's easy to do or not, but but just take each record and just sort of sum it up really quickly in terms of like what was going on with the band or the approach to each record. Um, like kind of, and, and it can, sure. it could be an opinion that you have now in hindsight or, or how you went into the recording or what was happening, you know, internally, et cetera. Well, we had already discussed Let's Barbecue, our, our first proper release and you know, how we did it on a shoestring budget. And, um, it, it's funny, we were so naive at the time of how to make a record, that um, when we got the test pressing, Paul actually brought the wrong test pressing to the pressing plant. And um, it, we ended up costing us money. And the original pressing, it was the original mix, was uh, a lot better, I thought. And what actually got pressed, to me, the drum sounded like Tupperware. I was never really happy with the sound of it. Mm. But there was only like four or five copies of the original test pressing, which had a completely different mix. And it's like, it was some people that have it, you know, bought it from me or bought it from other members on eBay for <laughs> lots of money. But, uh, yeah, it was, was kind of interesting to hear. Um, when we did Wacky Hijinks, 
our first album, a lot of those songs we already had because we've been playing for a while. And uh, we did that at a studio called The Sanctuary in Caldwell. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, a lot of uh, the early um, New Jersey hardcore bands, because it was really the only studio we knew, mm-hmm. ended up going there. We actually also sent DRI there when they were in, in the area. Oh, to, really? Yeah, if you remember that Maxim Rock and Roll compilation that they were on, yeah. um, they recorded their track at Sanctuary. Oh, how funny. Yeah, yeah, which is why it sounds like Tupperware. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I remember we were doing Wacky Hijinks, and like three-quarters of the way through making the record, the power went off in the studio, <laughs> like a complete blackout, and we almost lost everything we did. <laughs> we wow. were so scared that, like, you know, every bit of recording was just gone. But um, we ended up we ended up being able to recover it. But that would be the first time that something's gotten erased or lost. When we were doing our second album, you know, Humongous Fungus Among Us, we were in a really nice studio in West Orange, New Jersey, called the House of Music, mm-hmm. and. Um, the, we got into that studio after hours because of cert, certain favors from people that ran our label. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was a very nice studio. I mean, it's where Meatloaf did Bad Out of Hell, and uh, a lot of the bigger records were done there. And right. um, we were recording um, one of our songs, and the engineer, I think, was a little too stoned at the time and completely erased the song. So when we got done with the record, wow. one of the songs was missing. It was like, wait, what happened to that song? And we actually had to come back and re-record that song again. Oh, my. Yeah, it's crazy. But <laughs> making that record was really, really interesting. I mean, uh, it, there were so many strange things going on. Um, we, we were sitting in there mixing, and all of a sudden, Eddie Kendricks walks in, who was the singer of The Temptations. Yeah. And he's like, how's it going, guys? And he sits down, and, you know, for like an hour, we're hanging out with the singer of The Temptations, and he's talking wow. about Motown with us, you know? Oh, my goodness. How cool is that? That's you know? crazy. And, and I remember um, we had ordered out for pizza. It was probably like one in the morning, and the pizza guy shows up, and the first thing he goes, he says is, hey, you guys are AOD. It's wow. like, oh my God, how weird is that? <laughs> but uh, yeah, we've, we've had crazy, crazy things happen always when we recorded. Um, the only, um, we, we also went back to that same studio to do uh, with Elvis, with uh, Daniel Ray at the uh, producer helm. And that's personally my favorite AOD record. Uh, never been uh, released on CD. It's only been vinyl and it's out of print. But it was when we were starting to slow down a bit, but go back to our 77 punk rock roots and um it was a good mixture of you know hardcore and early punk and was melodic and was funny and the lyrics were funny and that's personally my favorite record out of the bunch of them uh the last record we did um ishtar was produced by andy chernoff and by the time we did that we had gotten signed to uh enigma restless and really the band was on our last leg we were ready to break up we were very jaded and we you know, any time we played, it was like, play faster, play faster. You know, it's like we got that a billion times. And um, mm-hmm. we were ready to break up, and then we got this deal with Enigma. So we're like, okay. And they're like, oh, who do you want to produce the record? And we, you know, thought about we were big Dictators fans, and we picked Andy Chernoff. And it was great working with Andy. He's another one that's got a million great stories. And, in fact, while we were doing that record, he got the call that um, Steve Bader's uh, died, and oh, uh, wow. I, I think we had to stop the session at that point. Mm. Uh, but making that record was a little stressful. It was the middle of winter, and we 
first started our sessions at like two in the morning, and uh, it wasn't a lot of fun to make that record. I really think that was kind of like, you know, maybe the death knell for us. You know, we kind of knew that it was coming. And then as soon as the record came out, the label folded, and the record never even got got out there. You know, right. it, was, it was released for like the first month, and then Restless went bankrupt. So the only thing that we got out of that record was a free Mexican dinner <laughs> by the um, one of the guys at Enigma. <laughs> that was about it. Wow, that's the way it goes. Yeah, that's why we called the record Ishtar. I was we gonna knew we were going say, over budget. Yeah, you know, we knew yeah. it was going to be terrible. <laughs> so I mean, we we always had this great self-deprecating sense of humor, and I think that really shined at that point. <laughs> you know, in in four dimensions. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, any, uh, I guess, memorable uh, gigs that AOD played? We had so many memorable shows. Um, or lineups, even. Some, some, of the, some of the better ones, like, we were, we were lucky where there were two bands that were very big at the time, the Dead Kennedys and the Circle Jerks, and we were lucky enough for those guys to really like us and help us out, and they helped us out a lot. Uh, Dead Kennedys put us on a lot of their shows back in the early days. We played the world in New York City with them. Mm-hmm. We did uh, City Gardens. We did Show Place. And um, Biafra and me and actually you know, ended up being decent friends and kept in touch. And he came to Florida, and I met him for lunch. We hung out for a bit. Um, Dead Kennedys and the Circle Jerks, uh, Keith from the Circle Jerks was great to us. He would always come out to our shows when we played in California. And he was the one that introduced us to uh, Gary Tovar from Golden Voice, so that when we would go out to California, we'd be playing like these massive shows, uh, you know, at Fender's Ballroom with the Dickies and the Vandals and all these great bands, you know. Mm. And um, that really helped us out immensely. I mean, those, those two guys didn't have to be nice to us, and they were, and we'll always remember them for it. Definitely good guys. Where was your favorite place to play? I mean, you're talking about like playing these really, really huge shows on the West Coast. I would say, for me, probably CBGB's. Mm. Um, for one, great sound system. Yeah. Uh, also, some of our shows at CBs were absolutely crazy. I mean, some of the more crowded shows and the hardcore matinees, I mean, the dance floor was just nonstop. And being a drummer and being able to sit down and look out at this was always kind of great. Also, Irving Plaza, the New York Thrash show we did, was really a breakthrough show for us. It was, we didn't get a lot of respect from uh, the New York people until that show, you know? Mm. Nobody really took us serious. And then when we played that show with Crow and um, Even Worse and The Young and the Useless, we brought, like, everybody that was into punk rock in New Jersey to that show. And we opened up with Status Symbol, and we had about 15 people on the side of the stage that, as soon as that song broke into the fast part, it was just a wall of people diving off the stage one at a time. It looked like an aircraft carrier with like um, planes <laughs> flying off left and right. Blip, 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 blip. And, you know, some of the guys in Bedlam were pretty big dudes back in the day, and uh, that show actually got... Um, coined the wall of fatness. Oh. Um, Bedlam diving off and like crushing the first couple rows of people. Oh, they were actually diving. Oh, back in those days. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you something. Lord. Funny. Uh, Sorry. The Black Flag at the Mud Club, mm-hmm. and Rhino from Bedlam kept diving off the stage and he kept landing on the necros. <laughs> and by the fourth dive, they were begging him to stop. I mean, these guys were getting creamed. You know, Todd and some of those guys from necros were yeah. kind of skinny. You know, they, yeah. um, they were just flattened like every time. Oh, that's very funny. Yeah, pulverized. 
Um, probably the craziest show we did was uh, when we played Gilman Street. Um, Tim Yohannan had booked the show for us, and he asked me who I wanted to open the show. And I was a big fan of the Feeders, and I was like, I would wow. love the Feeders to play. I forgot to see them before, and he's like, Are you sure? And I was like, I didn't know anything about their live antics at all. And I was like, Yeah, that'd be great. He's like, Okay. <laughs> so we do the show, and. Um, the singer of the feeders, Frank Discussion, comes out with a dead dog and a dead cat wrapped around his oh. neck. That he got, they were already dead. He got it from the from the pound, and he throws it into the pit right off the bat. Okay, oh. which now we're talking like the politically correct maximum rock and roll kids, you know, yeah, yeah. lost their minds yeah. by this. And this huge like debate breaks out, and there was so much going on with the feeders show. They had a song called Basket Case. And they have this giant basket on stage. They pick up the top of the basket, and there's this, like, invalid guy who's just, like, spitting, and he's in a wheelchair, and he's spitting and sputtering. And then Frank Discussion has all these live cockroaches glued to his bald head upside down, so they're just, legs are moving. (laughs) This was, like, the craziest (laughs) show I'd ever been to. And, in fact, when we got back home after the show, the show had made the National Enquirer because of the dog incident. Wow. <laughs> so that, was, that was just an immense show. And, and there was just people screaming back and forth, you know, from the stage. And, you know, Frank Discussion is like, you know, you people have to lighten up. The, these animals were already dead. We didn't kill them. We're just trying to shock you. you know? Wow. They did a song, um, one of their songs called Adultery. And uh, Biafra had come to see us at this show. And at the time, uh, Jello's wife had left Jello for Frank to discussion from the feeders. Oh. It was a bit awkward, and yeah. he calls uh, Ninashka, his wife, up to sing background on the adultery song, and <laughs> I, I saw like Jello literally tear up and leave. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. I mean, there was so much going on at that show in particular, and it's like, how do you follow that? Right. You know what I'm saying? It's like, Compete. hey, we're wearing stupid clothes, you know, we're going to play fast. <laughs> how do you follow something like that? How do you follow? It's yeah. like following Gigi Allen or something, you know? How do right. you possibly follow that? You right, know? yeah. And, and, uh, and that how... was one of the craziest shows. We also had a, a show in Vegas that was so insane. We played with Gang Green in, uh, on our first tour in 84, and we played this big, really posh ballroom in Vegas. And the kids were insane. There was so much crazy slam dancing going on that the owner tried to stop the show twice. And finally, he had security come out with this gigantic ladder. And they put the ladder in front of the stage so that nobody could dive off the stage. And I say that we, opened, we played uh, Rock and Roll Gas Station. And as soon as we busted into that song, the kids took the ladder from the security and started busting it into pieces oh. and there were people starting to swing on the chandeliers like monkeys <laughs> because they used the ladder to get up there. yeah <laughs> it was it was crazy i mean as far as you could see it was just movement and chaotic frenzy of movement that, that was one of the the more insane shows we ever played oh that's awesome but how did you follow up the feeders um <laughs> Really, I think we followed up by saying, how do we follow this? Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, and we, we had a good crowd that night. We, we did a really good set. We, we were on our cruising with Elvis tour, and we had Keith Hartel in the band. Mm. And uh, we, were, um, we were just trying to do the best show that we could possibly do. You know, it was um, probably very calm, in, you know, for everybody. Like, oh, AOD is only going to play at breakneck <laughs> speed, and they're not going to do anything think, with dead animals. Or yeah, you would think that, but it was anything but. And I remember like somebody like 
like was squirting us with like whipped cream while we were playing, and <laughs> other people in the crowd had confetti, like bags of confetti that they were just tossing up in the air while we played. It was, that was also a very, very crazy show. Wow. Even our set was crazy that night. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, you know, the, the crowd back then, I mean, early Gilman Street crowd, it was all like, you know, people from Rancid and Green Day before they were in Rancid and Green Day. It's, you know, mm-hmm. I ran into Matt from Rancid uh, years later, and he was talking about that show. Oh, wow. Yeah. They were all kids back then. Very cool. So it's uh, it's time for the, the final set that you've programmed. Excellent. And uh, the first song is from Pleased Youth, and I think that you wanted to, to, uh, to intro that somehow. Yeah, this is uh, the only recording that uh, was made when I was the original singer of Pleased Youth. We had done a, um, a demo that was supposed to be a full album for Bayer Records, and um, I ended up at my... You know, duties with AOD got more and more busy. Uh, I had to go on tour, and uh, please, you pretty much had to re- replace me. I just wasn't there enough for them anymore, and they got Keith in the band. Mm-hmm. And, and instead of putting out the record, they just decided, well, we're going to, you know, re-record with Keith, and that became the Dangerous Choo Choo album that came out on Bio Records. Right. Which I believe you did the artwork for, am I not mistaken? I did the, I did the, uh, the back cover, and I did the, uh, the sleeve. train, right? Mm-hmm. The train. Yep, yep, yep. nice, nice. <laughs> And uh, the the original record that had never been released is finally going to be coming out this year on Psychic Vault Records out of Brook- out of Brooklyn. Oh wow! Yeah, it's the same label that's been re-releasing the AOD stuff on vinyl. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to to see that get the light of day. Unfortunately, Paul Decalator, the guitar player and founder of the band, is no longer with us. Yeah. But uh, before he died, we were planning on putting that record out. So you know, I'm doing this. In his honor. So you're completing the thought and the intention of the band. Yeah, and, and to be honest with you, early Pleased Youth was a lot different from the later Pleased Youth. They, they really were a lot more melodic then, and the early stuff was a lot more hardcore, a lot more negative approach, you know. And, um, yeah, I, I, I liked singing, and it was, it was interesting to be a singer of a band after uh, being stuck behind drums for years, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. And uh, so this next set we're going to go into... Um, yeah, why don't you just quickly introduce a couple of the other things that we're going to do. Yeah, this is my ode to the area here. Um, mm-hmm. After the Pleased Youth, I've uh, got your band, Children of Adult Jails, mm-hmm. with uh, one of my favorite songs you guys did, Fishing for Compliments. Great lyrics. <laughs> Great lyrics. And uh, we played with you guys a lot. Let me, yeah. let, me tell, let me tell some people in the crowd that if you had never gotten to see Children of Adult Jails before, I was at the Dirt Club one night when you were doing the Reptile song. Oh, yeah. The song that you would come out and sing for. Mm-hmm, yes, because I, I, th- I was a drummer in that band. Correct. Yeah. And I'll never forget this. This girl with really big hair sprayed hair and her boyfriend were walking into the dirt club, and I was sitting in the back, and he had just started singing that song, and the girl looks at her boyfriend and she's like, What the hell is this? Well, I'm not staying. I'm not staying. And her boyfriend's like, Come on, come on. And the girl's like, I can't take it anymore, and she just <laughs> storms out of the place. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I'll never forget that. But oh, she, that's in, awesome. in, in all fairness, she was a bit of a poser. Mm. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I like those children and adult jail shows. Uh, we did a great show at, remember that place in, uh, in um, Rockaway that the, we had played? The Bell and Barter. Yeah, somebody that, just that put was, a flyer that a for that up. Yeah, somebody just put a flyer for that up on the, uh, the, the New Jersey Hardcore. Um, Didn't you guys do uh, the benefit for uh, Ramapo College too? We like, did. Oh, I remember. That was. I remember tragic. we did. I don't know if you were on the same night as us. Um, 
the Smithereens were on one of the shows, and Cracked Actor and False Prophets. It was a really good lineup, but mm-hmm. the the college made the mistake of having their football team be the security that night and paid them with free beer, which is never a good yeah, combination. That didn't go well. So it was just like you know these like beating up punk rockers as they're trying to have fun, you know? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, what are you gonna do? You know, a lot, of, you know, we've been to a lot of shows like that. We we played with the Exploited in San Jose. And they had Nazi skinheads as the security, and again paid them in free in free beer. So like, we played with Dag Nasty and Exploited that night, and it's nothing wow. like watching a bunch of people zig how Dag Nasty. You know what I'm saying? It's like oh, really, really, <laughs> this is the security you hire. You know, very funny. Wow. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, let's see, after the Children Adult Jails, we have uh, Rosemary's Babies from uh, Lodi, New Jersey, which mm-hmm. featured um, a young Erie Vaughn from Danzig. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, those guys were friends of mine, and uh, when we were younger, we used to dress up like the guys in Clockwork Orange and roll down the windows of the car and take baseball bats to people's mailboxes. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Again, you know, just trying to have fun and beat the boredom of New Jersey. And uh, let's see, after Rosemary's Babies is Sacred Denial from Clifton. Uh, and uh, those guys were one of the earliest bands on the scene. Uh, pretty prolific, put out a lot of records, uh, a lot of them overseas. And after that, Morning Noise, um, we're going to hear, which is a session they did off the Pat Duncan show. Uh, Morning Noise featured uh, Tommy from Bedlam and Steve Zing. Mm-hmm. And we're going to wrap it up with my buddies, Flag Democracy from Philadelphia with a song that's a little bit upbeat and uh, and positive, which is called Everything's Okay. It's one of my favorites. Excellent. Well, Dave Scott is my guest, and uh, he's programming the show. We've got, we're have got we into the final set. Uh, we'll be back yes. in a few minutes. And uh, Oh, yeah, so the first thing is Please, Youth, and this is with your singing. This is me on vocals, yep, yep. And uh, vinyl on this will be coming out soon, so stay uh, Sometime this year. Um, I'm not sure exactly when. I'd say probably towards the end of the year. We're getting like all our artwork together for it. Oh, got it. Okay. Very try good. To, try to remember the lyrics to these songs so I can write them down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay, so we're going to listen to some Please Youth now, and we'll talk to Dave in a little bit. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. 
Scott. Yes, sir. He is here. My guest is here. And uh, we're just about wrapping things up here. That was Flag of Democracy with Everything's Okay. Everything will be okay. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, just to run through that set pretty quickly from the top, we heard uh, you on vocals, Please Youth, with uh, New Brunswick State Police. And the the photo I put up is the Please Youth album, and you did explain clearly that it's not on that record. And and uh, you're not seeing on that record, but you had gave us a great story as to how that record came about. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that's perfect. Uh, children in adult jails with um, fishing for compliments. Yes, sir. Rosemary's babies, th- small minds think small. And then uh, sacred denial. Was that song called sacred denial, or was it called yes, theme? Yes, it's called sacred denial. Oh, okay, got it. Okay. And then after that, we had a morning no- noise live on FMU with uh, Vincent's theme and Flag of Democracy with Everything's Okay. Yes, what a set. Didn't this rock? Wasn't this the best? Yes, absolutely. So um, I just wanted to ask you, is there um, anything else that you want the listeners to know? Uh, Yes, today is National Women's Day, so a big uh, happy National Women's Day to all the ladies out there. Oh, great. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'll be coming up in uh, the end of May to start doing some interviews for the book. So, Mm -hmm. you know, people that were in the scene expect to hear from me. Uh, I'll be contacting people, and if anybody wants to contribute, you can uh, reach me at my Facebook site or go to either one of the Facebook groups, the Old School Hardcore Group or the um, New Jersey Hardcore Group, and uh, you can get in touch with me through there. Um, you know, Anybody that's got some original photos or some great stories, we'd love to have it in the book. Very good. And uh, Dave, I just want to thank you for being my guest. And I want to thank you. This has been a lot of fun. And I didn't really have to leave my bedroom at all. It's, oh, that's the best part. Isn't that a, g- a good way to spend the day? Preparing to be an invalid later on in life. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope not. <laughs> Let, let's hope it doesn't go that way. And, you know, you never know. But, you uh, never know. So, so Dave Scott is my guest. And uh, thank you for programming the set and for being who you are in the, uh, the hardcore scene. And may I just say stigma. Everybody take a shot. Come on. Everybody say stigma. Stigma. Take a shot. Yeah. Nice. It was great being here. I had a lot of fun. And uh, thank you for for having everybody participate in a drinking game so early in the the day. Yeah, why not? What else do we have? It's National Women's Day today. Let's drink to that. Very good. Okay, so Dave Scott, thank you. And uh, we are WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WFMU.org. And that wraps it up for today's podcast. Thank you to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast and to Liz Berg for all the other background work. 
We are WFMU.